Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. At the beginning of uh, the decade of 1980, the chairman of the philosophy department at the Northwestern Illinois University, uh, Professor Hugh Moorhead, he decided to write a book to explain the purpose and meaning of life. And in preparing to do so, he decided to write to about 250 distinguished persons, scholars, scientists, philosophers, psychologists, authors, persons with a wide range of intellectual experience. And the question he asked them was for them to give their perspective on the purpose of human life. Among the persons he sent the letter to were persons like the Nobel Prize winner, Francis Crick, who along with a gentleman called James Watson, defined the molecular structure. So, you know, the discovering of DNA and all that sort of thing. People really think and research. He pulled on those kinds of people. He also sent a letter to Joseph Heller, who is the author of the novel Catch-22. Uh, many of you would have known about that. And also to what is considered the most famous American psychologist. His name is Carl Jung. And he asked them to give their perspective on the purpose of human life. Moreland's plan was to write this book on the purpose of human life and its meaning and to be able to present the best ideas, the best explanations for the purpose of life, so that people could have a deeper grasp and understanding of why they exist. But the, the responses that he got were not very encouraging. Some wrote back and offered their very best uh, ideas on the subject, but they admitted that they were only making this up, because they really haven't got a hold of this subject. Others were honest enough to say that they were completely clueless about it and preferred not to offer an opinion. Still others said they had no answers to the meaning of life and they're no longer searching for one. And the vast majority of responses, respondents I replied and said, when you find out, let me know. The question as to the purpose of human life, why we exist, why we were born, and even how to live our lives, is one that has challenged the thinking of well-thinking people throughout many generations. It's an age-old question. And the answer to this question, so important it is, that sometime 
I think it was in the 1990s, that a Southern Baptist minister, Rick Warren, wrote a best-selling hardback book titled The Purpose Driven Life, which was the fastest-selling book ever published. He sold 25 million copies within a few years of its publication, and it is still being sold. And whilst Rick Warren did an excellent job in explaining that a life that is lived without purpose and meaning is certainly not well lived, and he joined another very well-known philosopher, uh, Viktor Frankl, who made pretty much the same observation, but at the end, Warren, Rick Warren was not able to say, well, this is why you exist. This is the purpose of human life. And so the question as to the purpose of human life and why we exist is a very important one. And the question is, does the Bible give us answers? Does God provide us with answers to this question? Because if not, it certainly is a dilemma that we are in if we do not know exactly why we exist because a life that is lived contrary to the purpose for which it is created certainly is a wasted life. It's no different from purchasing a brand new car instead of a, a coop to raise your chickens. The car is just not for that purpose. You don't buy a car in order to raise your chickens. You go get a cub. And so, if the misuse of any item, not to speak of human life, is what exists, then there is a problem. And that is why I invite you to think with me today about this subject. I invite or young people in particular, and I'm so happy to see the wonderful young people that are here. Because you're at the stage of life where you're growing up and you are trying to take decisions, you're trying to, um, you want the best for your life. And you're looking at everyone, you're looking at role models, you're probably looking at your school or your university to see who are the the more successful people, you're looking at the church, you're looking out in various other areas where you see people and you're saying, well, what's the best way that I can live my life? Turn with me, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, and to the third verse, because here, a very distinct, powerful person, King Solomon, who the Bible describes as the wisest man that ever lived, at least during his time, and certainly I would go as far as saying even during our time, he wrestled upon this question, the purpose of life. And I just want you 
keep your finger there in, in Ecclesiastes. Keep it there. But just turn over to First Kings for me. First Kings chapter 4. And verse 29, because it's important to understand the credibility, the authenticity, the reliability of this person that we are going to be looking at what he has to say about the purpose of human life, King Solomon. First Kings chapter 4 and verse 29 says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breath of understanding as measureless as the sand of the seashore. Now just think about that for a minute. This is a gentleman we're going to be listening to, so I want you to understand. If someone is going to come and talk to you and you say that this is an advisor or this is someone that is going to be um, counseling you, you'd want to know, well, who's this guy? Is he worth listening to? His breadth and depth of understanding was as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Verse 30. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. Now bear in mind that Egypt was the United States of that time, the most powerful country in the world. And so they would have had it. They are the ones who you would look at and say, wow, there is power. There is might, there is knowledge, there is wisdom. And that is who Solomon was, the wisest man. So it probably is worthwhile listening to him. So in chapter 1 and verse 3 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon too was very concerned about this question we are asking. He didn't use the same words. But here is what he, he asked. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? What's the use? What's the use of going to school for, from the age of three until maybe the age of 21, thereabout, whatever, you get a degree. And maybe you go on to do your doctorate, so you're probably 24. I don't know. Some people are brighter than that. And you go on and you get this great job to be the CEO of the largest company in Canada, the most celebrated company. You are the chief executive officer of that company. And your salary is unmatched by anyone else. You're earning the largest money, so you are the highest earning person in the country. And you are in charge of thousands of people, not only in Canada, but in other parts of the world where the company has its, its branches. And on top of that, you're able to buy for yourself the finest home, the finest cars. You're able to provide for yourself all the things that you could ever think of. Very comfortable. Your health is great. 
And all is going well for you. Think about it. At the age of 35, you're achieving things that people at the age of 60 have never achieved. All that greatness, all that wonderful thing. Think about it. Everyone wants to be good and great and accomplished. So let's think about it. And let's think about it that you are even so healthy that you just haven't had any illnesses. So what happens? Well, you continue that job and you continue to live in that blue, beautiful home. Of course, you got the loveliest spouse, you know, the most handsome man or the most beautiful woman. You married and you had these lovely children. Oh my goodness, nobody is as bright as your children. They just, they're just blessed. And they have come of age and you're seeing and you're seeing grandchildren. Wow. And then there comes a time when it's retirement. And after retirement, you said, well, it's time now. You know, I was so busy working in the company. I can go now explore the world. So you're able to get on the yacht and you're able to go to the countries of the world or on the aircrafts and you're, you just explore everything. And you have all of that. You're really enjoying it. The finest meal, the finest wines, all of what is good. You're able to have it. And then retirement runs into about 10 years of retirement. And you're feeling a little slowed down. So... You decide you're going to take it easy and you're going to be working with some kind of a charity. So you take on a charity because you want to do good things. And you're helping young people and doing very great things. But it gets so terrible ten years later again that you just can't manage. And little by little, you find that now you have to be home. And within another ten years of that, you have died. You have passed. And so there's this great funeral about this great person, about this wonderful person, and all the people came the church could not hold. And all the glowing remarks and remembrances are spoken. But they have to have had a cremation. And all that you see of this wonderful, powerful, influential, wealthy, famous person is a little thing they call an urn in which some ashes is put. And at the end of the day, that's all he has earned. Just an urn. King Solomon actually went through that kind of an exercise. Turn with me now to chapter 2, verse 4 of Ecclesiastes. He tells us more about his life and his experience and shows us that he was a man, that kind of a man, who had nothing, he lost nothing, he had everything he wanted. Verse 4 of chapter 2. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks 
and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He continues, I bought male and female slaves and had them, had all the slaves born in my home. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone else in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver. I amassed gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers. He didn't even have to go to a theater. The theater comes to him. And the harem, as well as the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. That's good. Which means that while this is happening, he's thinking. He's trying to make sense of it. I denied myself, verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. Yet, he's reflecting after all of that. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. What? Really? After all that? After all of that? I thought he would say, I, I'm just wonderful, great guy. I mean, I've done it all. I, I, I've fulfilled, uh, you know. I think he would have said something like that. After all of this, everything was meaningless. It was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was achieved under the sun. Turn over to chapter 5 with me, please. Why did he say that? Why would he say it was meaningless? Why would he say that it was a chasing after the wind? Why would he say that nothing was gained under the sun? Chapter 5 and verse 15. He gives us the answer. He shares this ultimate result of all of this greatness. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing with him from his labor that he can carry in his hand. In the West Indies, we have a truck that the banks use. Uh, they call it the Brinks truck. I don't know, you know. It's like a guard's truck where they collect all the money from the bank. And I don't know where. They take probably to the central bank or something. And so you'd always see the Brinks truck 
come to the bank and it's loaded up and there are like five, six guards in this one vehicle going down now, maybe to the central bank with all that money. This guy had more than could fill a brink truck. But with all the wealth that people have had in this world, we have never seen a brink truck behind a hearst falling it. Never. The hearse goes alone. And maybe the family and the relatives are falling. But nothing you can take with you. And that's what Solomon is saying. Nothing we take into the world and nothing we take when we depart. So, is that all the life is? When you think about it? After all of that schooling that you got? After all of that education? After all of that fame on the television screens around the world? After all of the, the wealth and the beautiful home and the beautiful family? Turn over to chapter 6 for me, please. King Solomon continues in chapter 6 and verse 3 of Ecclesiastes. Here's another observation he makes. A man may have a hundred children and live many years. Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity, no matter how long you live, you can't enjoy your prosperity. So, after working for all of that, you can't enjoy it? All you can do is just put down six foot six. And does not receive a proper burial. Verse 6. Even if he lives a thousand years. <laughs> no. He's very generous. He's very generous. Even if he lives a thousand years. Twice over. But fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. Do not all go to the same place. You see, God's word is wisdom. God's word teaches us things that the world does not. The world places so much emphasis and so much pride in the material things, yet we are seeing the very opposite in things we are reading. So, Solomon draws a conclusion. He draws a conclusion. He doesn't leave it there. He knows that this is something that has to be addressed. So, here's what he does. Chapter 12 and verse 13. Here's a conclusion he's going to leave with you and me. Here's what he's going to say. Okay, so what's the answer? Because the question is, what is the purpose of human life? Why were you born? What is your life about? What is the essential of life? Is it the things that preoccupy people and make them feel that they're happy and successful? 
Or is it something else? Here is this man who is credible. You can listen to. Here is the advice. And this is an advice I'd love for particularly our young people to take on board and to reflect on. Now all has been heard, he says in verse 13 of chapter 12. Here is the conclusion of the matter. So, okay. He didn't just ask questions and make remarks. He's now going to come to a fine point. He's going to settle. He's going to come and say now, okay, so this is what life is about. This is its meaning. This is what you're supposed to do. What does he say? The conclusion of the matter is, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. This is the whole duty of man. What we have learned in that from Solomon's remarks is that life is more than the physical world can offer. The physical world cannot satisfy human needs. Christ puts it this way. He said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I think that's a beautiful summary. Because the world would say, the world measures people. They look and see who is great and who is powerful. So they look at the people who have the greatest things. So the billionaires. Oh, you, would you like to be a millionaire? Would you like to be a billionaire? Now, nothing that I'm saying is to discourage you from making the best you can in this physical world. To have the best job. To make yourself very self-sustaining in terms of your economy, your finances. To make yourself qualified. And to achieve all these things. But what we are saying here is that that is not the essential. It is not the purpose of life. The Ecclesiastes, chapter 3 and verse 11, if you turn there with me. We have to understand what man is, what woman is, what human person is. And although we are physical beings right now, There's something about us. This is probably what people mistake and call it immortal soul. Man does not have an immortal soul. But there's something about man that is far different from all the other creatures God has created. And here it is 
in the book of Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. It says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. What does that mean? God has set eternity in the hearts of men. There's something in the human person that says, no, this can't be it. There's something more. I'm not satisfied that this could be all. There's something in the human mind that says, look, there must be something beyond what we understand and what we have. There's a reason why the human person cannot be satisfied. Have you ever noticed? No matter how much an individual earns, okay, you're earning probably, let's, let's, let's say, the person's earning $25,000 a year. And the person who is earning $25,000 per year looks at the other person who is earning $50,000 per year and says, you know what, I wish I was like that guy. I hope the day will come when I can earn 50000 too. And the guy who is at 50000 is looking at the other guy earning 100000 and saying, wow, I don't know, but one of these days I want, to, I want to get there. And the guy with his hundred is looking at the quarter millionaire and they're looking at the millionaire and they're looking at all the other people and everybody's looking at the other one because where they are, because when the guy at 25 gets to 50, he's going to want to get to the place where the guy who is 100. And that is really how it works. The human person, there's an insatiable appetite for greatness. There's an insatiable appetite to do wonderful things. But we just can't identify it. We just can't discover what it is. We can't except with the word of God. And so, because God has set eternity in the hearts of men, men cannot be satisfied with perishable things. Men cannot be satisfied with things that are not immortal, not forever. It's very important understand that and therefore when Solomon says to love God and to keep his commandments what he's saying is that there's something about that that represents eternity the eternity that God has set in our hearts and that's what we want to explore There's a man in the scriptures, spoken of in the book of Hebrews, if you turn there with me to Hebrews 11, chapter 24, who grasped this concept well. And all the people in Hebrews 11 did grasp it, but it spelt out this one, which is Moses. And it is showing you how he got a hold of what really matters, what really is eternal, and really makes a difference as to really why 
the eternal things matter to him. And what he would do in order to gain the eternal things as against the physical. Moses thought about life and its meaning and he grew up in an empire of wealth, as you know, in Pharaoh's empire. He grew up with the best education there. He grew up with the opportunity to be the successor of Pharaoh. Because the daughter's son, that's his grandson. He could have been that person. He was heir to the throne of Pharaoh. He had control, he had power. He had all these things. But let's look at what the scriptures say about him, starting in verse 24 of Hebrew 11. It says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, now think about this, particularly our young people, I'm talking to all of us, but I, I, I want the young people to get a grasp of this, because the earlier you get a grasp of this, is the earlier you are on top of everything. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Really? How much higher could you get? Are you lacking in ambition? Verse 25. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Ah, for a short time. There is pleasure. The pleasure is just for a short time. The pleasure is a passing, just as Solomon discovered. And so Moses would have understood this. And he grasped this. Verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Our value system, the value system. How do we determine what has value and what does not? You see, the mindset of a child of God is absolutely different. From a person who is endeared to the world. Value system. Why is it that disgrace, suffering disgrace with God's people, is greater than the treasures of Egypt, which was the most powerful country? Why is it that all of the treasures of a country like the United States, of Canada, Canada's you know, but I'm just using it because people claim it to be the most powerful country on the earth. And okay, so I'm just using it in comparing it with Egypt. That you can have tomorrow all of the value of the United States of America plus Canada, all of North America. And that's yours. Moses looked at that and he said... No. Greater value than the treasure of Egypt. Why? Because 
he was, he was looking ahead to his reward. In other words, it's not that he lacks ambition. It is that he understands value. And he knows where the greater value is. He knows what matters more. It's like someone comes to you and, you know, I'm sure you know this. Many persons have come and see. If I were to give you a million dollars right now um, and give you two choices. Either you get a million dollars right now or I'll give you a penny with a promise that it will be doubled every day for the next one year. 365 days. I don't know if that works out, but <laughs> it's something like that. So the penny becomes two pennies tomorrow. It becomes four pennies. It becomes eight pennies. It becomes, and then it keeps going. And when the math is worked out, you, at the end of the year, are having millions of dollars. It's just a matter of understanding what you see. We need to understand that the treasures of Egypt for a short time, the treasures of this world for a short time, no matter how much treasure it is, is not worth it. Why? Because when life ends, the treasure, you have no way of enjoying it. So it goes on in verse 27. By faith he left Egypt. Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Oh, isn't that kind of an oxymoron? Isn't that kind of a contradiction? He saw him who is invisible? He's invisible, so how come you saw him? Yes. There is. There is. And that is why the terminology was used even with, um, with Solomon. God not only gave him wisdom, but he gave him insight. There's a way in which you can vision, you can see things. And we know it. Everything in this world that man builds, man thinks about it. Before the motor car was, or the aircraft, or the buildings, he envisions it. And then it goes on paper. Then it goes on the ground. He thinks about it. So there are things that we can see that although they do not exist, we are capable of conceptualizing them and understanding them. So to that extent, even in the physical realm, we are capable of these things. But this vision is spiritual vision. It is a spiritual eyes to be able to see the greater things. Why are we talking about this? We're talking about this because there's a competing world out there for your attention, for your affection, for your endearment. It's competing. And it is asking us to give up that which we do not see for that which we see. Because it would say, seeing is believing. But we are saying, no. Seeing with your physical eyes is not really believing. 
Because there are things that we do not see that are far more valuable than things which we see. It went on. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover. Oh, really? He kept the Passover. By faith. You notice that? Because it is Christ. Christ or Passover. He saw Christ. That is why the Passover is not an abolished festival. Because Moses saw it ahead. He sees it when it shall be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. As Christ promised. He kept the Passover. And sprinkling of blood. So that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And he, he kept it because he understood its, its ultimate meaning. The question is this. Why would men like Moses, like Abraham, and, 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 and women like Rahab, why would they give up so much that they could get then and just to give it up for things that they have not yet received? Well, turn with me please to 1 Corinthians. Turn with me please to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. Because what we, the world needs to understand and this is why the, the question could not be answered by those 250 men. Those 250 men, the philosophers, the psychologists, and all the rest of them, who tried to answer uh, Professor Moorhead, they would have to have this understanding to answer the question he asked them. This is what the Word of God says about the vast majority of mankind which God has gifted you, He has gifted me, He has gifted the people in the church of God with this insight or this vision that is not available to everyone. What we are learning is that the greatest things that God has prepared for man are not the things that we see. It is not the planets that we are looking at. The universe. It's not the earth. It's not the plants. It's not the trees. It's not the seas and so on. Those things are valuable for physical life. But they are not the greatest things that God has prepared for mankind. Let's read what, what, Second Corinthians, what 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 9 says. It says, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man. Man is ignorant. The things which God has prepared for him, for those that love him. Man, man, man hasn't got the slightest clue. Even in this physical world, let me illustrate the power of the things that we cannot see as against the things that we can see. 
we are able to see. Probably, and I'd like to be corrected if this is not true, the most valuable provision for human life that God has made, the physical life, is not the food that we eat. It is not the water that we drink. It is the air that we breathe, the oxygen. And I say that because it is possible for you to survive without food for maybe a month or two or so. Or without water for a few weeks. But that air that we breathe is something we can't see. We can see the food. We can see the water. But that air, that air that we breathe, can you see it? Yet, God created it and provided it to sustain our lives. And its value, if you think about it, how valuable it is, whilst you can do without the food for a few months and the water for a few weeks, try doing without the air for a day. Oh, not a day. For an hour. No, not an hour. How long can you do without taking a deep breath? Want to try it? I'll count. <laughs> if, you try, if you try not taking in a deep breath. Isn't it amazing that God will give us an example of the unseen things how valuable they are to our, our existence. Because of all the things that exist, that keep our lives going minute by minute, we don't even remember that we are taking in this air. Similarly, the things that God has prepared for us are the things that we are not seeing. And that is where the philosophers and the psychologists and all these great scientists need to get some kind of a clue. So therefore, if that is so, what does, what does Solomon mean? The whole duty of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. What, what does that all mean for us? God has designed a plan through which those who fear him and keep his commandments, there is a promise that he has given to them. And what, what, what Solomon is saying, look, if you do that, this is what God is going to do. If you do that, here's what God is going to do. For all the non-commandment keeping folks who believe it is just optional, we need to get back to the root to understand how essential it is to be keeping the commandments of God. Turn with me, please, now to Hebrews 2 and chapter 5. Because 
here is where now the Bible spells out the real purpose now for human life. So what we did, we looked at, wow, the futility of life. We looked at, wow, what God requires to fear God and to keep his commandments. But really, what is a promise? What is it that God, what is the reward for keeping God's commandments and fearing God? The Bible shows that God's purpose for creating human life is to give birth to beings just like himself. Just like God. To transform you from being a human being to being a God being. We sometimes say spirit being. God is spirit. To change us from being temporary to being permanent It's important to get a deep grasp of this because the only way to resist and to overcome and to give up like Moses gave up all of Pharaoh's wealth is to have this deeper understanding of what the promise is. You were born to become exactly like God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, let's prove it. Hebrews 2 in verse 5. Not only were you born to be exactly like God and His Son, Jesus Christ, you were born to inherit. So here is the inheritance. So God is, not, God is not against inheritance. Pharaoh's inheritance and all the other inheritance that we are talking about that attracts us. It's okay to want to get all these great and wonderful things and powerful things. But the point is, there is a greater wealth than Pharaoh's wealth. There's a greater wealth than the wealth of the world. The wealth of the world is perishable. There's a wealth that is imperishable. So let's start in Hebrews 2 and verse 5. It reads like this. It is not to angels that he, God, has subjected the world to come. Why are you saying that? Why are you saying that? It's not to angels. Because this is the problem with Lucifer. The reason Lucifer rebelled against God is that Lucifer caught wind of God's plan that it is not to angels that God is subjecting the world to come. That is why you have an enemy that is why the enemy is seeking to destroy you. Because you are the ear and the inheritor of the great things to come. The will is written and your name is in the will. Verse 6. But there is a place where someone has testified and this to this question, it sounds so much like the subject we are talking about. What is the purpose of human life? 
What is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. What is, what is going on here? What is it that is going on why God is paying so much attention to man and to humanity? What is, what is, what is God seeking to achieve here? Then he goes on in verse 7. Listen to this. You made him a little lower than the angel. Aha, uh-huh, that's true. Right now we are below the angels. The angels are greater beings than we are. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. But after saying that, look at what he says. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Okay, so everything is on the feet. But listen to what he says. Yet at present, we do not see everything under him. Okay. What is happening here? It is saying to us that the purpose God created man is to put everything under his feet. But presently, it's not there. It's not there yet. But the plan is being unfolded so that we can understand what God's plan is. God's plan is to put everything that he has created under man's control. Everything? Yes, everything. Not the earth alone. When you look out into the universe and you can see as much as you can see these stars and all the planets and all the things that are out there, just a few ago, uh, one of the space um, ships, if you may, that was sent out into, into the universe traveled nine years at an amazing speed. I don't remember if it was 32,000 miles per hour. Something like that. Nine years, something like 32,000 miles per hour it took. And yet it took nine years to pass by Pluto. I just took a snap, a few pictures of Pluto. Yet Pluto is a small planet compared with many of the others out there. In fact, the scientists, the astronomers tell us that the sun, which is 90 million miles away from the earth, if it were hollow, excuse me, you could, you could pack a million planets the size of the earth in the sun. That's how big the sun is. You could pack a million planets the size of the earth in the sun. And there are others that you can pack a million suns in them. What is all that for? Why did God create all these things? We are told that we live in the, 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 the Milky Way. The solar system they are called the Milky Way. And it's a galaxy. And that has billions of planets in it. And there are 
billions of galaxies. So there are galaxies enough for you to have a galaxy. For me to have a galaxy. So it is possible in the future that you can invite me over to your galaxy and I can invite you over to mine. Yet people are at war fighting over a few acres of land on the earth. You know, presentations like this really, if the world had some insight into this information and could believe it, maybe peace could be brought to the earth. Because people would see how futile and senseless it is to be fighting over this limited space that they are they're having wars about. When they know that they are already part of a plan to inherit beyond human imagination the amount of land, the amount of space that they will get. God's plans put everything on the man. But right now, not everything is there. So how do we know? How do we know then that it will happen? Well, let's go down to verse 9 of the same book of Hebrews in which you are. Hebrews 2. Verse 9 in the same chapter of Hebrews 2. So he says, you made him a little lower than the angels. We saw that in the earlier part. You crowned him with power and glory. And you put everything under his feet. Yet at present, we do not see everything under him. But here's where verse 9 picks up. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angel. Oh, yes. Jesus, while he was on the earth, was made a little lower than the angels. Just like man. In the exact shape of man. Because what God is doing for us, He's painting a picture, a model for us, so we can understand where He's taking us. So although we don't see everything, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. And then verse 10 explains now. So Jesus, we see him, and he is the son of God. He is the, the, the only begotten son at the moment. But look at now where it continues. In bringing many sons to glory, and sons here are children, there is neither male nor female in God's kingdom. So, I know sometimes it sounds as though, well, this is just about male and so on. The, the terminologies. He's, God is bringing children, children of God, family of God. And bring many sons to glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, would make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, what God did was to make Christ become man, 
so that man could see that the, the, the fact that man can become God, a God being, so what God did was to make God into a human being to say, oh, it's possible. This is possible. It's possible for man, therefore, to be a God being. Why? Because Christ, who became man, became God. Many people, they argue, oh, that's not possible. But that's what Christ is all about. That's what that example, that model is all about. It just shows that it is possible. It is possible for a human being to become a God being. And that example is in Jesus Christ, who became a little lower than the angels. And it says, now crowned with power and glory. It goes on, verse 11. Both the one who makes men perfect, who makes men holy, that's Jesus Christ, he's the one who makes men holy, and those who are made holy, that's human beings, are of the same family. When you are of the same family, you are not any greater being than your child. You're not any greater being than your spouse. We're all the same kind of being. When we are a member of the family of God, we are beings like God. That is why Jesus is God. Therefore it goes on, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. Jesus is the example of who we will become. So, let us get a little sense of who we will become. Let us find out who Jesus is. Romans 8, verse 17. If you look there quickly, you see it tells us. It says, Now, if we are children, because remember we are going to become sons, children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. So we're not just children. So we're not just going to be beings like God. There's more to it. If we are children, then we are heirs. In other words, we are inheritors. Inheritors of everything God created. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Which means, co means we are similarly going to be owning with Christ the universe. But there's a cost. And that's what Moses saw. This is why he chose to suffer with the people of God. Because it says, co-heirs with Christ, if we share in his suffering, in order that we may share in his glory. Understand now the purpose of suffering. Understand why the challenges you face, the difficulties you face, have meaning. And why, therefore, everything that happens to you, you can say, thanks be to God. Because the word of God says, we must go through much tribulation in order to enter the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God here means family of God. It's a kingdom of beings. Look at 1 John, chapter 3. Verse 2, 
to show you that we are going to be exactly like Christ. First John chapter 3 and verse 2. What does it say? It says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. When he is revealed. See, I think the problem with human, the human nature is that it's hard to believe these things. Why? It's easier for us to believe our mother or father or grandparents who are writing a will to leave great things for us and we will say yes. And we will even make sacrifices to get that. Because we are accustomed to the temporal world. But these are spiritual things. So when all these promises are made, we just, we just, it's not so easy to grasp. And that is why to, to grow in the spirit and to keep our minds on the things of the spirit and not on the things of the flesh is part of the Christian walk. We shall be like him. We shall be like him? So what is he like? Turn over to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verse 15. If we shall be like him, then we want to know what he is like. Because that tells us what we will be like. Because that is the explanation. We shall be like him. That's an absolute statement. Colossians 1, and start in verse 15. So here is what Jesus is like. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created. You know what that means? You are going to be creators. All the creation, all of the things, maybe that Lucifer crashed, out there, when there was war in heaven. Maybe some of that work. But in that creation, in that, in that, in that being crea- becoming creators, like our creator, it's going to be just a wonderful experience because God is going to give us this kind of, 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 of power to do things. He's the creator of all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Jesus Christ. We shall be like him. And the Bible is telling us this. Either, you know, you know, I think what is really important? I think what we need to do is more of a study. Is the Bible true? That seems to be a fundamental study that we need to settle on. Is the Bible true? Can we believe it? Can we trust it? Are these things going to happen? Because once we have settled that question, there's no problem. It's all here. Verse 17. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is 
the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So when the scriptures say you're going to be a co-ear, co-ear, if your mom or your dad or your grandmom or your granddad, he had two or three children, and they said you're going to be co-ears, what that means is that the inheritance is equal among you. That's what it means. Or Father in heaven, God or Creator, is saying that to us. The big secret of Christianity. Because what is taught commonly is, you know, you're going to heaven. What are you going to do when you go to heaven? Well, well, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to say holy, holy, holy. That's good. It's our creator. You must say holy, holy, holy. But what does God say? God is in the business of building his family. And you are a family member. And being a family member means you're not a slave in the house. You're equal to his son, Jesus Christ. That is why I'm not ashamed to call them brothers, Jesus says. When we understand that our purpose is to be born into the family of God and to become co-heirs with Jesus Christ's Son, the example which God has placed before us, there's no way we can, we can give up. If our life has to be taken by the world who is doing all kinds of miserable things in order for us to stand up for God, go ahead. Because I know, I know, shall arise. I know that I shall live again. I know that Christ promised me eternal life. And for that reason, I can stand boldly and say, well, if that's the best you can do, go ahead. All of creation, not the earth alone, is destined for man to inherit. And you are that person. So why were you born? Why did God create human beings? What is the purpose of human life? It is for us to become beings like Him. I've heard so many who make the statement that, oh, that's abominable. That's blasphemous. Why do you say something like that? You're going to be like God? God says so. And he knows. He's the one who is doing it. It's a different thing when God invites you and promises you 
that reward as against Lucifer who sought to go to tumble over the throne of God to be like God. That's quite a different thing. That's robbery. But in this case, God has made this promise. You will not be a mortal being. You will be immortal. That is the purpose of human life. Not simply to inherit the estate of our mom and dad and our grandparents, but to inherit the entire universe to be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And the price we are asked to pay. There's a price. The price is to commit these 70 or 80 or 90 or let's say you get 120 years to commit that to God. To say, you know what? I am investing in eternal life. I'm using 70 years to get 70 trillion years and more. That's quite an investment. If someone told you that you could take $70,000 or $70 in order to make trillions of dollars, that's what they promise you. You say, when do you want it? I'm ready. How about giving every day of your life to God? Every day. Every day that you wake up to make it count for God. I thank God for this great promise. And you know what? It's not just for some people. It's for everybody. And that's the beauty about what we teach as a church. Unlike the church that teaches that people are dead, they're now being burnt in hell, and all the kind of thing, we say, no, 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 no. We, we serve a God who loves humanity. And a Christ who died that the world through him might be saved. And therefore, every human being has this opportunity. What a message to share with friends and relatives. What a message to share with those who even have people that have died and they think that they are in burning hell. To be able to tell them of the wonderful gift of salvation and of the real inheritance. But to understand it is quite another thing. May God bless you. May he cause you to be so strengthened. To reflect so deeply that you resolve in a very, very special way to give up your life for Jesus Christ. You will not regret it. It is written by God in his word. Amen. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.